Welcome to the Veterans Club Podcast, a production where veterans and community meet and thrive. We talk with veterans about their life and military service and to veterans organizations about their community service efforts. We've joined forces with the Baby Boomers Radio Network to help increase the reach of veterans and their heart for service. With your help sharing these episodes, we can reach more people and change more lives. Thank you for tuning in. And thank you to our veterans for their service to country and community. The Veterans Club is brought to you through the generosity of our sponsors and advertisers. Please visit www.theveteransclub.org and thank those companies who have contributed to making this program work. Mark your calendars November 5th to attend the Veterans Recognition Ceremony hosted by American Legion Post 154 out of Rathdrum, Idaho. Event starts at 10 a.m. Location is Betty Kiefer Elementary School in Rathdrum. The event is for all veterans and families. Doors open at 10, event starts at 11, refreshments and lunch are included. Is your organization serving veterans? Do you have an event coming up? Make your announcement right here on the Veterans Club. Let us help you connect with more veterans. Visit www.theveteransclub.org and click on the link, make an announcement. Complete the form and your announcement will be made in an upcoming program. Please give us plenty of advance notice so we can record and include your announcement in our weekly program. Are you a veteran? We want you to be a guest on the Veterans Club. No matter if you served in peacetime or combat, your military experience is important for the next generation to hear. Your story is also important for other veterans to hear. You served our country with pride. Sharing that pride with the world can help other veterans who feel their service was not appreciated. Interviews can be done over the phone, internet, or in-person location depending. Visit www.theveteransclub.org and click on the link, be a guest. Welcome to the Veterans Club. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now, before we start, I, I would like to express my sincerest gratitude for the sacrifices the men and women who served our country in combat made for our country. We ask these questions for the purpose of capturing history with with hopes that, well, future conflicts might be averted. But when conflict is required, knowing how the combat veterans who served before handled the stresses of war are important lessons for all of us. I am with Leon Crosby today, who served in the U.S. Army from 1964 until 1970. Lynn served two tours of duty in the Vietnam War, first as a platoon leader with the 4th Infantry Division, and the second as a company commander with the 101st Airborne Division. Lynn, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today, and thank you for your service to our country. My pleasure. Thank you. So let's, let's just dive right in. Can, can you describe for the listeners what it is like to serve in a combat situation? Uh, yeah, when you're, when you're in an infantry battalion, you're basically, particularly if you're if you're out in the field, you're you're always on guard. Uh, you're uh, actively hunting for the enemy, and as we were in Vietnam, 
uh, and when you actually make contact with the enemy and combat occurs, uh, it's very chaotic. Uh, there's people shooting at each other. There's people uh, running around yelling. Uh, yeah, as the as the officer, the platoon leader, the company commander, you basically have to take charge and provide direction. Uh, you need to, you know, be aware of all the resources you have, whether you can call in an artillery strike or call in an airstrike. Uh, make sure you're, you've got good communications with the with your subordinate uh, people, uh, your platoon leaders or your or your squad leaders. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the last the last thing you do is shoot your own weapon. I mean, I, there were a couple of instances where I ended up having to shoot my own weapon, but most of the time I was telling people where to go, how to do it, uh, and, uh, and making sure that they were protected. Or protect protected as I could I could make them. Woo! That came out of nowhere. No, I, I imagine that'll happen several times, and that's okay. We'll just take all the time that you need. Okay, I'm good. Okay. Um, I have no frame of reference for combat. I was served in peacetime. I was a military musician. Um, I, I, I never even used a field kit while I was in service. Um, you know, best I had was you know getting drunk one night in a in a beer tent in Germany, but. That's that's a different <laughs> podcast altogether. Uh, give us some of the senses that are taking place during combat: the smells, the the sights, the sounds. Well, you're you're, you're I mean, your all of your senses are heightened. Your your uh, perception of time is diminished. Uh, I mean, you can be in combat for a very short period of time; it will seem like quite a long time. Uh, your eyesight narrows uh, due to adrenaline. Um, your, you know, there's all kinds of loud noises all over the place. Uh, certainly, you know, small arms fire, grenades. If you call in an airstrike, a very large sounds or an artillery strike. Uh, you know, you're you're basically, uh, you know, trying to control your own emotions and. Uh, be as calm and collected as you can because, uh, you know, the, you don't want the people you're leading to, to feel like you're out of control or you don't know what you're doing. Um, you know, I, I always had my, uh, my radio telephone operator right next to me. He was handing me, you know, if I, if I was talking to my platoon leaders, he'd hand me the right micro or the mic right handset. If I was talking to uh, air traffic controller trying to call in an airstrike, you'd hand me another one. You, know, you have to have situational awareness, and you'll hear that from anybody who's been in combat. You have to understand where your people are. You have to understand where the enemy is. Uh, and you have to make sure that uh, you know where you are so that you can, if you're calling an artillery or, or an airstrike, uh, you don't end up calling it on in the wrong location or on top of your own people. You know, I, I would imagine that in this chaotic environment that you're describing to us, uh, the basic human instinct or fight or flight, uh, the, the, uh, the, the ability to overcome the fear factor, the, the desire to, to run away, uh, how, does, how do you overcome that natural fear 
when a, when faced with a combat situation? Uh, you know, you have your responsibilities, and that's what I, uh, you know, I think you, I think we all focus on that. I mean, you're worried about your people, and you're worried about, uh, you know, extracting yourself from the situation and them from from the situation you're in, or advancing through them and, uh, you know, taking your objective. So that I mean, that's what you have to focus on. And there's so many different things that are going on in terms of command structure and, as I said, calling an airstrikes or and they take tremendous amount of focus. So you really don't get, you get an adrenaline rush, but it, you really don't feel the adrenaline rush until after it's over. That, then you get the shakes. Yeah, I would imagine that the post-action fatigue is incredible. How did you deal with that in the field? Uh, you know, you, you continue to focus on uh, on your responsibilities. Uh, if we were uh, if we were advancing and taking an objective, the as soon as you do that, the, you have to worry about snipers. You have to worry about uh, other uh, enemy units that are in the area. You have to set out your security. So there's a lot of things to focus on before you can really sort of stop a minute and wind down. You're constantly talking to your higher headquarters so that they understand what you're doing and where you are and how you're doing it. And uh, if you know if you're uh, communicating with the artillery or with the airstrike, you, you call them off or or tell them you know they 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 got the objective done. Uh, again, you know it's just a matter of focus. And until you actually s stop. Things settle down, and you're and you're able to take a moment, you know. In that case, in my case, light a cigarette, sit down with your sergeant, and assess what happened. Then, then it starts to, you know. And and the other thing is, uh, you're also focused on uh, once the action is actually over, uh, whether you've advanced or withdrawn, you're taking care of your wounded. You're trying to get them out. You're trying to. Sometimes you have, in Vietnam, we almost always had to withdraw and then blow an LZ, which took a great deal of time, uh, and then bring in the medevac helicopters uh, and get the wounded on board, or or in the case if you lost somebody, get the get the body on the board, and uh, uh, so there's anyway, just a lot of things to focus on, uh, and you were the people that uh, you were the person that your troops looked to to make those decisions. To make that happen, uh, and yeah, there were tremendous support from the sergeants, and and in the time I was company commander, tremendous support from your from your lieutenant platoon leaders. But you've you've got to initiate uh, all always. Let's let's do this. Let's do that. Blow the LZ. Look, call in the dust off. That sort of thing. What was the scariest situation you were in that you remember? <laughs> Narrowing it down to one, huh? Uh, let's see. I would say probably one of the well, there were there were basically two. One was when we were uh, we were on uh, the perimeter, uh, and uh, our position. We in fact we were probably two or three clicks out in front of the uh, in front of the company. My platoon was, and we got uh, attacked, uh, ambushed. Uh, and I had two uh, two men out in a listening post position in front of my position, 
and I lost contact with it. So uh, I ended up having to crawl out to uh, with my medic and one other man to uh, to to recover them, and uh, one of them was killed, and the other one was badly wounded. Uh, and as I reached down into the hole they dug for themselves to pull him out, there was a sniper that had zeroed in on me. And as I and, and I and I actually pushed my head down into the hole to pull this kid out, uh, he shot. He was shooting for my head. It went through part of my neck and through my medic's chest. So uh, after I called in an airstrike to kill the sniper, uh, I had to drag them both back. So that was a scary thing. The other thing was when we were pulling up perimeter duty on a battalion firebase, uh, we actually got overrun by an NBA, a large NBA, NBA unit, and we fought all night. And they got into our, uh, they got into the uh, bunkers that we built, uh, and we we ended up calling artillery down on our own position. Uh, they actually took over the, the artillery battery we had, although we'd spiked the guns. Uh, and we ended up uh, that evening or, or that morning going hand-to-hand, -hand, uh, basically through each of the bunkers, killing the people, the, the North Vietnamese Army people that were in those bunkers, and then trying to secure the perimeter. While around us, there was constant airstrikes uh, and napalm. So... Those wow. are two scary situations. Those would be very scary situations. What what percentage of the um, combat um, skirmishes were surprise on you versus missions that you executed? Well, you know, when you're out in the field, particularly in the jungle, you're actually looking for the enemy. I mean, that's most of the things was uh, most of our you know, our, our actions, we'd be brought into a landing zone. We'd be uh, asked to uh, uh, go from one hill to another, go through a valley where there was a suspected enemy. So you were basically the bait. Uh, I mean, somebody was casting you out there to see if the trout would bite. And um, so in most of those, we were moving toward an objective, but we were ambushed or we came into contact with an enemy unit that somebody didn't know was there. We didn't know was there. Uh, and then you basically, you know, deployed, tried to keep from being flanked, either withdrew or advanced, depending on the objective. Uh, and on the rate of, you know, whatever, whatever you'd run into, it was a very large unit. You tried to withdraw and put artillery between you and the enemy. And if it was a very, uh, if it was a reasonable unit, you felt you could handle it, then you went, went forward. But, most of the time, we were out looking to make contact because we didn't know where the enemy was. I would imagine being an officer, it, it came with some extra duties beyond what the soldiers dealt with, with sure. you know, the firefights. You, you had to deal with the after-action reports, notifications. Uh, yeah, I had to write letters to the next kin uh, for kids that were lost. Uh, yeah. I, I served as a paymaster, uh, uh, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the young men had sweethearts that they would send money to based on the number of letters they got that month. <laughs> no letters, no money. Uh, so you know we had to go out and actually pay them in military. It was 
funny money, we called it, uh, MPCs, military payment certificates, and then they'd give it back to the to you and tell you what kind of a money order they wanted, and you'd record that, uh, or they keep some of it. Uh, but there wasn't any, there wasn't much to spend at all. Uh, well, yeah, not out yeah, in the field. Exactly. No. Yeah. So, uh, and you know the reports and going back uh, to make sure, I mean, making sure your people were supplied, checking on their ammunition. You know, uh, there were times when uh, I had, uh, you know, we we were at we were the tip of the spear, but we were the end of the of the uh, the very end of the supply line. So stuff got ripped off all the way up. And I had kids running around out in the jungle with, you know, their pants ripped up or their boots falling apart. And uh, I got very fortunate because uh, I got a first sergeant who was close to retirement. He was probably about 150 pounds overweight. And I said, I'm not going to take you out to the field because you'll die. Uh, but I want you to stay back here, play poker with every supply sergeant. And I'm going to send you a list every Friday. And it comes back on the helicopter, or you come back on the helicopter. <laughs> and uh, from that day on, I had whatever I needed. You know, I had a bottle of scotch for the colonel every uh, Friday. I had, uh, you know, beer ration for my men. I had, if they needed boots, I got boots. So, you know, it was, uh, it was a matter of just, you know, finding the right person to do the right job. From a standpoint of keeping up the morale of the troops, what were some of the things that you did as a commander? Uh, I tried. I tried to. Pro I tried to protect them when they were in the field, and I tried to protect them when they were out of the field. Because when you pull a unit back into base camp for supply uh, refurbishment and for you know, give the people some rest and an opportunity to take a shower and get some new clothes, invariably the people that are in base camp see those as willing hands to do chores they didn't want to do. So I was very defensive when somebody came to me and said, well, you know, we need your platoon to, to uh, handle the latrines. And I go, no way. We're not doing that, you know. And that got me in trouble sometimes with a colonel or a major. Um, but uh, I was, you know, I was very defensive of, of my troops, and they knew it. And uh, and I also, you know, had their had their welfare foremost in my mind. Now you were awarded the Purple Heart twice, yes, um, for being wounded in combat. Could I? I understand the first one was when you were shot through sure. the neck, right? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the second one? Well, the second one was when we were overrun, and uh, uh, in the course of the fight. Uh, I, you know, there were rockets and and grenades and uh, uh, I, I think a, a, a enemy mortar round. Actually, I have the tail fin right up here. Enemy mortar round landed, uh, you know, right next to me. And uh, uh, I got shrapnel up and down both arms and both legs. So, you know, that it really didn't incapacitate me. But, it, yeah, it was a wound. I had to go back and get treated. So I got a second Purple Heart for that. Uh, the one I didn't get a Purple Heart for, which I'm glad about, this is a Chinese communist hand grenade, mm -hmm. and it landed right between my legs in the middle of a firefight. The fortunate thing was that the gentleman who threw it at me didn't pull the fuse. <laughs> so I threw mine and killed him. <laughs> wow. So I keep that to remind me that life is short. Do you your best. you got to value every minute that we have. Yes. 
How did serving our country in combat impact you as a person? Whew, that's hard. I, you know, I think my whole life uh, I was um, I was always trying to do my best, and I think uh, serving in combat sort of made me even more conscious of that. You know, doing everything that's asked of you and then doing try to doing a bit a bit more and uh and i think that was part and parcel of why i had a very successful career uh and why i'm still very actively engaged in community and in veterans efforts uh i've been working on the new ida north idaho veterans home that's under construction and will be open in november uh i've been actively working on that for 20 years so to getting getting the VA grant to get it built and uh, now you know working with the uh, with the community to support it. So uh, I think you know combat just reinforced all the things that my parents had tried to teach me as you know having been raised in that environment. Now I I work on some volunteer activities as well and and for me they're almost like therapy. Yeah. Um, how does if your list of volunteer achievements is rather lengthy extremely long you've received numerous man of the year awards you you've like you mentioned you were instrumental in securing the funding for the the building of the veterans home here in in post falls it, is this a a therapeutic activity for you or is this just because you've got a heart for the veterans that served well, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, it brings you into contact with other motivated people, which is really rewarding because you get to interface. You know, I mean, the people who got me involved in the Veterans Home were former Post Falls Mayor Clay Larkin and former State Representative Frank Henderson. Uh, and, and they're just amazing. You, you come in contact with amazing people who have amazing goals. Uh, but I would say it's not therapeutic. It, because I, I'm, I'm the kind of person, if I agree to be on a board, I'm going to be prepared when I come to the board. I'm going to board meeting. I'm going to read everything they send me. I'm going to be, and I find that that's probably about 20% of the people who are on boards, unfortunately. But the other people have good hearts, and they, they come and they listen. Uh, but uh, <laughs> actually, the therapeutic part, I tell my wife, is, is uh, doing jobs around the house. I mean, it's something that you have a start and you have a finish. If I mow the yard, it takes me two hours, and then I look out and I can see a mowed yard, and, then, and it it's the end. That's the end of that chore. And and the other thing is just keep going. <laughs> so now I, my wife and I just celebrated our thirty first year together, and and I know that I'm a successful man because of the woman who who I married. Absolutely. How has your wife been um, a help in your life since combat? Um, she's been very supportive of me. Uh, she, um, uh, I, I was not married to this woman when I was in Vietnam. I was married to a different woman who divorced me when I got back. Uh, so when I found this woman, she... Uh, was very understanding of what I'd been through, very supportive, and continues, continues to be very supportive. And just, you know, she's the best thing that ever happened to me. So, 
uh, I couldn't have found a better person. Um, just amazing. Now, after Vietnam, our troops didn't come home to a very warm welcome. No, they didn't. Uh, how did that make you feel when you came home to that reception? Uh, I, I wasn't prepared for it. I, you know, you when you're over there, you it's certainly my first tour. When you come back, you think, oh, I'm going to see my family. I'm going to have a glass of milk and uh, eat a steak and this, that, and the other. Uh, I got off the plane, and uh, I, I was on the plane with a guy that I knew. We went through ranger training together and had both been in different parts of Vietnam, but he, we came back at the same day, and uh, we landed at uh, McCord Air Force Base over in Seattle, and we shared a cab back to the SeaTac airport because he was going home and I was going home. And uh, we were sort of talking among each other in the cab ride. And I can remember when we got out, the cab said, the cab driver says, you know what you guys mean to me? And we said, what? Thinking that it was going to be something complimentary. This is more unemployment. And I thought, welcome home. <laughs> and then uh, when I finished my second tour, I still had a couple of months in service uh, but I was applying, uh, I had applied to, and been accepted to a graduate school, uh, University of Illinois. And uh, I went to uh, my, uh, to register. And as I was walking through, this, through the corridor of the administrative building, there was a, a group of people who spit on me. Uh, and because uh, I had my uniform on. So that was. Difficult. That was difficult. Yeah. How has the transition of the acceptance of soldiers from the 70s to the acceptance of the soldiers coming back from duty in the Middle Eastern now, from your perception, how has that changed? Uh, that's an interesting question because, you know, the length of the Vietnam conflict we thought was very long. It was, you know, almost... 18, 17 years, but the length of the Iraq-Afghanistan conflict was more than 20 years. Uh, so you would have thought that we would have had the same negative reaction within the country that we did, and we did to some extent. I think part of it was the Vietnam veterans came back and said, that's, that's never going to happen again. We won't allow that to happen again. And we were very vocal about, you know, you ask us to put our ass on the line, and then you treated us like crap. Uh, and we're not going to let you do that again. And I think there was there was that uh, understanding in the country that you know when we send people off, we don't. They're not the reason. They're not the reason we're at war. They're not the. They're the people we send to to, to prosecute the war, but the, the politicians and the decision makers are all people we have right here. And if we're going to protest, we need to protest to them. And we need to hold the soldiers' duty uh, and their honor uh, to, a, to a standard that we would hold anybody who went out and protected us. Amen. What advice do you have for a young military recruit who might face combat in their military career? Listen to your sergeant. 
he knows he knows what he's talking about. He's probably been there once or twice before. Uh, you know, uh, try to uh, you know, you end up in combat, particularly in a in a in a dramatic combat situation. You're not fighting for motherhood and God and country. You're fighting to keep your your yourself protected and the guys on either side of you. I mean, that's your focus right then. And so just, you know, take care of each other. I, Lynn, I can't, I, I can't express the gratitude enough for your service and for Thank your you. time today. Do um, you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with the listeners? Uh, you know, I think as a country, we need to be con conscious of the fact that uh, we have a very small percentage of our country that's now serving the military. In World War II, there was probably 48% of our, of our population that was serving in the military in one sense or another, uh, even among, you know, Army nurses and, and waves and wax and, and that sort of thing. In Vietnam, it was about 23%. Today, there's 1.4 million men and women in our armed forces, and that represents four-tenths of 1% of our population. So we don't, have, we don't have people who've got military experience in Congress. We don't have people who've got military experience in our legislators. Uh, we don't have people uh, who have military experience in our last three presidents. Um, and that's, that's frightening when you look at the world and you see what's going on in Ukraine and how dramatic something like that can be and how you need the country behind you and, the, and you need to motivate the people that are out there fighting the war for you. And then you look at the challenges to our country from Russia and from China in particular, and, and you think, you know, that's a very thin, very thin line of defense that we have. And we rely, I mean, we have wonderful technology, but we rely too much on technology. And the other comment I would make is in Vietnam and certainly in Afghanistan and Iraq, and as you see it in Yukon, in the, in the, in, uh, in uh, Ukraine, Ukraine, uh, we've developed weapons that can inflict much, much more damage on the human body than we can before. But we've also developed ways of treating people from combat injuries they pull these people off of the off of the battlefield that would otherwise not make it off the battlefield except in a body bag. And so we're going to create, uh, yeah, give you some examples. 22% of the people who came back from Vietnam were classified as having disabilities by the Veterans Administration. 42% of the kids that went to Iraq and Afghanistan are classified by the VA as having disability. So we're creating our own group of disabled veterans and that's one of the reasons i was so passionate about the veterans home not for today's veterans but for those kids that are going to turn 60 in 25 years well your service is exemplary your your time is cherished and your service to country is is thanked thank you thank sir you. thank you Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed the episode, please click the subscribe button and get notified when new episodes are published. Please take a moment to share these episodes with a friend. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have something to share with the community, please email info at theveteransclub.org.